1: If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, aka that hat I always wear, go to our website ww.andtherriteris.com. Welcome to And the Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. Today's legend slash artist slash songwriter slash film composer is an epically skillful pianist and emotionally deep lyricist. This multi-Grammy award-winning Swiss Army Knife of Compositions first hit, The Way It Is, discussed institutional racism, homelessness, and civil rights, cloaked by an evergreen chorus with a melody infectious enough to become a hit multiple times, including when it was sampled by the greatest West Coast rapper of all time, Tupac. After the release of his eponymous album by the same name, The Way It Is, he won Best New Artist at the Grammys and since released another 20 albums, maybe uh, played on 100 albums, sold millions of albums, And got another 12 nominations, all whilst working alongside the great Spike Lee, composing over six film scores. He's recently released a new project just this year, collaborating with everyone from Boney Bears, Justin Vernon and the Shins' James Mercer. From Old Williamsburg, Virginia, this overachiever is a genuine family man. And the writer is Bruce Hornsby. I think I don't know if any of that was accurate, but it seemed close. Well,
0: I, you had a lot of chutzpah there, reading it with a lot of <laughs> a lot of get up and go, and at least I think one, one, one thing is accurate. One uh, bit was accurate. Uh, overachiever. Uh, I, I think it's safe to say that when I was in college, uh, no one would have said, "Oh, that guy, yeah, he's really got it. He's going to be something, whatever, something." A special. Uh, there were certainly some people in my in my college, University of Miami, that were marked for greatness. Uh, a, a great, the great. I played in in this woman's band, Carmen Lundy. It was always sort of a a mark uh, that you were moving forward, moving up the hierarchy in the city of Miami's musical circles, and at least in the jazz jazz-ish circles. And uh, so. Uh, yeah, Carmen Lundy was her name I played on her senior recital and you could just see that she was just bound bound for greatness and she ended up achieving that she's had a great uh, career as a jazz singer
1: what but before we get to the beginning of your story um what do you think's the difference maker between those people that you felt were marked for greatness and what you ended up achieving what Why do you feel like you had, why it worked out for you if you feel like you weren't marked for that same grade? Well,
0: okay. Uh, Number one, I was a late starter. So when I was in the aforementioned time at Music School in Miami, I'd only been playing the piano for three years at that time. I was a jock before then. Uh, I played music. I had a little band in sixth grade playing guitar, but every kid played guitar because they wanted to be the Stones or the Beatles. Uh, I got into piano late junior year of high school. So maybe I've been playing four years by the time I got to U.M. So that's one thing. I'm just trying to catch up at that point in my life. Uh, and there was so much to learn. Uh, and and so I was deeply involved and I was a real grinder. I was always in the practice rooms, always, again, trying to catch up. I was just willing to do the work. Uh, so, but that's one thing where that would have... Uh, not would have kept me from being <laughs> marked for greatness because I had such a late start that I really was not too fully formed then in, in any way. Uh, that's that's one thing. Uh, uh, I don't know how, how to really put all this. Uh, uh, once I got deeply involved, I do think that I was fairly tunnel visioned. About trying to, uh, but from a certain point, probably about from my mid-20s on, I really sort of grokked the idea of finding your own voice, finding yourself, uh, your your own style, maybe musically, uh, in my case, pianistically, uh, uh, and finding your voice as a songwriter, trying to not be derivative, to not be generic, to not just sound like everyone else, to so not just to to try to do something uh, with a little more depth and gravitas than just writing a hit song. Okay. So, uh, right. so that, that's a couple that's just me just spouting off trying to somehow answer this, this tough question.
1: No, I mean, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a tough way to start. Um, I feel like I should have asked you something that was funny or something to begin. Well, we we uh, can get
0: the funny. I can, I can try, yeah. I can try anyway.
1: <laughs> you can do funny. I'll try. Um, let's, let, let's start from the beginning, you know, uh, being born in the 50s, it's a different kind of music that you were listening to, I'm sure, than, you know, what kids are listening to now. So, you know, you're born in Williamsburg, a very classic town in the United States. Uh, <laughs> were your parents in music? Were they? Did they play music? Did they listen to music? Well,
0: speaking of Williamsburg, just to speak to your characterization of Williamsburg, I don't know if you've ever heard of the legendary old rock critic writer paul nelson It was actually a book written about paul he was a deep guy and he wrote for loads of magazines and he did a piece for me uh, about me in in, for musician magazine the late great musician magazine pretty extensive piece and and he came to williamsburg he was a venerable old sage at the time an older gentleman still with the letting his freak flag fly he looked like an old hippie basically or maybe, maybe one of Kerouac's pals, you know, uh, Ginsburg's pals in the, the Beat era. And he, uh, so I met him, and he was staying at the Williamsburg Lodge. And he said, man, this place is really creepy. Huh.
1: <laughs> he said,
0: I, walk, I walked around Colonial Williamsburg, and I just got the heebies, you know. So I've always thought, okay, well, here's, a, here's an outsider <laughs> with possibly the truest perspective on it. Who, I mean, who,
1: who it's, it it's hard to explain that town if you've never been there right it's a place yeah. that really explain explain yes. williams yes thank you people
0: because people are going it. well what's he talking about so that thanks for getting moving me there uh, uh yeah williamsburg is known for its restored colonial town colonial williamsburg you can walk the streets and meet people with you can walk the streets in your tricorn hat and your powdered wig maybe shoot a musket that's something they've Put in to draw more tourists, to, to draw the, the uh, draw the uh, accolades of the NRA, <laughs> and uh, uh, so so that can be either sort of inspiring if you're interested in history and want to see this this uh, reenactment of it, uh, or it can be maybe a little creepy. Uh, it, uh, so that, so but that's what that's what Williamsburg is known for. Although now it's known for Bush Gardens, because uh, Anheuser Bush has a uh, has a, a brewery here. But mostly, yeah, perennially, historically, it's been all about Colonial Williamsburg, and that's what uh, the late great Paul Nelson was. Uh, Casting aspersions upon. Uh, so, right, well, you first, asked about my parents. We, they were. The,
1: yeah, I was going to say because you're you. It's not like you guys were listening to 18th century, no, only 18th century no, <laughs> music. No, you know, no, Even though you're in- we we were <laughs> not.
0: Although we could. When when you grow up in a small town, not a lot to do. There's certain. For us, there was one thing that we would always do on on a weekend of, of, of boredom. We would often go and watch the Colonial Williamsburg orientation film, "The Story of the Patriot," with featuring Jack Lord of future Hawaii Five-O fame. As John Fry, House of Burgesses uh, member, so we would walk around the town, going, "Are we so meek and pusillanimous? Are we such adultish people as to swallow this absurd distinction? Is it disloyalty? Is it sedition to oppose the hand of tyranny? Never! We are free Englishmen with the God-given right to tax ourselves, and we shall not yield that right—not to Parliament, not to towns, and not to the King himself." So that's that's what we that's what we did in our childhood. We learned that. <laughs>
1: Legendary. Yeah. Anyway, I feel like I want to put a melody to that. We should, <laughs> we should sample that right there. That, um,
0: okay, possible. Yes. Yeah, so you asked about my parents' music. Yeah, yeah. Music was often was always in our house. My mom's dad, Paul Sonier, was a musician for a living in Richmond, VA, and he was the house organist at the local mosque. If you'd go to the state JCS convention, you'd see Paul pierre paul saunier paul saunier uh jamming out on turkey in the straw on the big theater organ there uh he was also supervisor of music in the public schools the pubic school system of richmond uh featured paul saunier and so my mom was a pianist and my dad played a little sax his older brother sherwood hornsby had a band we have a I have a poster over here uh, uh, advertising a dance featuring Sherwood, Hornsby and the rhythm boys, little big band actions sort or of Glenn Miller, Harry James vibe. And so, yes, again, it was always around my parents. We can't find, we haven't, this, this tape may be lost uh, at this point, but there for years existed, a real to real tape of, of, uh, of all of us little children, of we little children singing, uh, different songs that have me singing Hound Dog at age three Uh, and Pat Boone with the wind and the rain in your hair. (laughs) uh, uh, Charlie Brown, he's a clown. He's going to get caught. Coasters. So there was always that there's proof in that tape that we were singing and performing music as little kids. And so my older brother got really deeply involved a little later. Again, I was more into every sport in its season but bobby hornsby was the guy in say junior high school who had soul bands and psychedelic bands he had a band called love minus zero it played oh i don't know love and uh uh i don't know if you know the band love they were sort of, sure, of yes uh, what's that
1: I, yeah, yeah of course okay
0: yeah of course okay uh and me and moby grape whatever they played they played psychedelic, Psychedelia, Hendrix, uh, et cetera. But then he had a soul band that played Wilson Pickett and Otis Redding and Sam and Dave and that sort of thing, too. So it was always around.
1: When did, you know, I mean, that's such a wide variety from Glenn Miller to, you know, yeah, the, Psychedelic. The Gambit was death, run, but, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: No doubt. Um, when did you start playing... Because I assume piano was your first instrument, just knowing, you know, the lineage that you come from and then also your, you know, your knowledge of chord changes. I would assume that that's just been in your blood the whole time. Were you playing from through all those sports seasons or was music introduced later as a as something you should perform? Yeah, the, the legend
0: has it that I asked for to take piano lessons when I was seven. So I did that. I took from Miss Garrison at Garrison's funeral home. If you want, you had to go to the third floor, uh, to the top of the house, and you'd walk by the caskets and embalming fluids. So it was a little out for an eight year old kid to be doing that in, the, in that milieu. But uh, I only did that for a year, and then I stopped doing that. I just wasn't interested in enough and just said, hey, can I stop? And this it was fine. So that was my first foray into music into keyboard specifically but then about age maybe 10 11 probably following my older brother's footsteps because he was really into it but i was kind of into it too and i played guitar i learned how to play guitar and had the aforementioned band playing everything from cherry cherry to to get off my cloud to mushroom clouds are falling by love i think and so we played uh battle of the bands Twelve, sixth 6th grade 12 years old but again i was more more into the uh the games and sports and then later on we still stayed into that athletic pursuit until my junior year when my older brother again influential older brother had gone away to prep school in, in New England, in Connecticut. So he was instantly less provincial in his musical knowledge than we were, basically listening to the top 40 in the Soul Station back, back and forth in, in southeastern Virginia. So he came home and turned, turned me on to Joe Cocker, Mad Dogs and Englishman, with the great Chris Stanton piano in Oregon and the great Leon Russell piano and arrangements it just turned me out. I just thought it was, I'd get chills thinking about it right now. And then he turned me on to, and it, that, that was that was music that you didn't hear around here because it wasn't on the radio. And uh, it was underground. I guess they called it FM rock at the time. And also he turned me on to, I'll never forget this, driving down the part, the Colonial Parkway from Williamsburg to Yorktown, the, the hysterical triangle, as they call it. And, uh, in jamestown New yorktown williamsburg we're riding down there to visit our cousins and he's in his gto and he's got his eight track tape of tumbleweed connection by elton john and he puts in this song called amerina i'd heard your song on the radio that i knew a little bit and I, I was it was good i was fine with that but this thing just again turned me out like the mad dogs record did and so so much so that i wanted to investigate and i said to myself okay i want to learn how to do this it it got me again it's fun it's it's interesting what gives you chills in your body and that that did again so so i went home and i knew the basic chords on the piano because my brother taught me those chords uh because they needed a guy to play organ in their soul band for a minute while the real organ player organist was out somewhere uh so I started just learning, learning, learning from my basic knowledge that I had, my little neat headed uh chord knowledge. And that just tur that just it just became my pursuit. I was a hoop I was a hooper before that, I was a, a baller and but when I got into this man the uh the music uh overtook the uh the hoops, the the basketball thing, and uh I got totally immersed in it submerged in it and uh and that was then it just kept on from there
1: did it inspire you to write or did it inspire you to play well not
0: yet uh although we did write we weren't very serious in school we just pulled a lot of crap and pranks and uh we were really into abby hoffman's steal this book I don't know if you've seen the recent Netflix. I know that. that? Okay, you know who Abby Hoffman was? You know Abby
1: Hoffman. I don't know who's Abby Hoffman. Okay,
0: well, this is great. This is a a, a, some classic '60s American history for you, and it's sort of timely because, or it's not. It's absolutely timely, timely because on Netflix right now, as it was just released, I don't know a week ago, and reviewed in the Times, Aaron Sorkin wrote. And directed oh, okay. uh, a, a new movie called "The Trial of the Chicago 7. Okay, Correct. so Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin—they were the twin leaders of the Yippie movement. Okay, and and uh, Sasha Baron Cohen plays Abby Hoffman in the movie, and he's fantastic in this. Uh, it's very good. This movie, uh, I I think we just saw it last. Yeah, week. It's very, so now you know what I, I, I
1: know who you're now talking now you're about. Me. Yeah, okay.
0: So, yeah. well, Abby Hoffman wrote a book. So back then, we as young young clowns, we loved all these these. We loved Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman. Abby Hoffman's first book was Revolution for the Hell of It, and so we we were all in on that. But when he put out his next one, Steal This Book, oh, we totally we immersed ourselves in, in that, and so oh, we became we became a uh, universal life church ministers you could send away for a buck and get your minister's card we could have performed weddings and funeral services and we had a band booking company that booked only the shittiest bands in town we would only book a band if they were terrible and we would reserve the right to name them so we had such bands as the uncommon <laughs> the uncommon cold uh, the benign tumor <laughs> the soul basketball the psychedelic, the sound, the system, just just inanity, okay? And uh, so we wrote, I was, at this point, I was deeply into Leon, and Leon Russell had had his his great company called Shelter Records, record company. I was a total shelter devotee. I'd I'd get every J.J. Kale record that came out, the Freddie King records, the three great blues records that Leon produced for Freddie King. Uh, So... And steal this book. Abby told us that you could, if if you want to get free books and records, make some fancy stationery that has the, the title of your magazine or, or that you that, that you publish, and write to the company, the, the the publishers and the record companies, saying, "Well, we are we." This is our, our magazine, and we do regular reviews of books and records, and please put us on your mailing list. So he wrote to Columbia Records, Warner Brothers, and Shelter, and the only one who wrote us back and sent us records was Shelter. So of course, at that point, now, if I wasn't into Leon before, I was all in now. And so this was, I don't know how I got off on the frivolity of our youth, but you you led me there, so how did that
1: happen no, perfect. No, I, I think what's interesting is, you know 1968 and you know talking about the chicago 7 and yes, the, the, the democratic convention and
0: the and yes the protests yeah. right mm-hmm.
1: um, my mother was there i'm from chicago was, that's uh, something uh, to be proud of yeah yeah um, I, I imagine that you know there's no way that Politics isn't also infused in your music listening at that time. Um, well, it was
0: everywhere. It was it was ubiquitous. It was,
1: it was uh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, s- side question: Why is it that this generation in such a divided time? Why is it that music, popular music, yeah. doesn't to talk about politics at all? It, it exists in you know it, it really exists in hip hop, and it always has. Yes. No, that's what makes that genre sort of the folk music of our generation. You know, Certainly, where the, you're cer- a, yeah, that's, a, that's right. A,
0: on a protest, focus protest music level. Absolutely,
1: there were hits that yeah. were protest songs, but not so many when you look <laughs> back. <laughs> I, I,
0: I was just because I was, said music of today. I was going to say, well, wait a minute. The popular music of today doesn't. But then you mm-hmm. you said it yourself. Uh, that's it, it's a, a key uh, addition to that that statement because obviously protest music now is, is 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 kind of all over the place but it's under the mainstream radar screen because the popular music of our day just like any day it tends to be more kids stuff you know it mm-hmm. tends to be more like you know TikTok and just more love love bow love songs whatever i don't want to to disdain to besmirch it but the, the protest music is not what they're looking for and they never were looking for it really on hit radio so i don't think this time is any different from, if you went back and look at the hits of the day in that in the 60s you'd see it was not dissimilar. it obviously stylistically it's totally different now different uh, styles have evolved and that's what's supposed to happen in a great way but uh Look, you had Barry Maguire, The Eve of Destruction. Now that was a protest song that was a hit. Dylan's songs, I I don't I don't think Blowing in the Wind Times They Are Changing were hits, but they were certainly known uh to a large underground populace. And I think that's the same way now. Uh, a perfect example, my song The Way It Is, which uh was made you know, obviously famously was remade by Tupac Shakur. His song changes in ninety in ninety eight. Well, that song, if you go by the charts, changes by Tupac uh, got to number thirty two on the Billboard Hot one hundred. So that's not that great. But changes by Tupac by Tupac is an iconic song. You know, it doesn't need it. It has its life totally divorced from from hit radio and it's uh, again same thing back then same thing
1: now yeah i think a lot of people don't realize how many um and i use the word evergreen in in the intro but how many evergreens were not hits you know i think there's this yeah. statistic where <laughs> the only bruce springsteen song that ever went number one was the cover the man for man cover of blinding by
0: the light yeah
1: but that he never had a number one song at radio is shocking when you think about how many songs he has that are hits and you know when you look back and you see the top 10 songs of any specific week you will not know eight and a half of them (laughs) so
0: that's the point that now these these times in that sense the times haven't been a change in really in that in in the music business uh and but that's that's the way it always was, and that's how I guess it always will be and who cares just so if, if look if you're really deeply invested you're gonna find great music you may have to really dig for it but uh if you want it bad enough you'll find it that's i mean there's such amazing music out now and uh no doubt and, and so but you have to look for it
1: you you went to School in the seventies um, to college, and and I, at least what I found was that you had gone to music school at University of Richmond, and maybe also Berkeley and University of Miami. Is that right? Where, where am I wrong here?
0: Just that there was no, just that there was no music school per se at University of Richmond. Oh. I spent my one misguided year at real college at U of R, and I spent all my time in the and Fine Arts Center. Fine arts building, practicing, uh, and then I, which made me realize, well, I need to cast my lot with the musos. and so I went to. I, again, I was just a, a kid from small town Virginia. I didn't, I, I had no mentor. I had to just figure it out, which is what it's just good. It's, you should be able, and so I, I'm sure I went down a few roads that were not productive, but then realized and came back. Just you're just trying things and trying to figure it out. So the only music school I really knew about, as a guy I knew had gone there is Berkeley in Boston, Berkeley with two e's as opposed to cal berkeley and and so I went there for two semesters and then uh transferred to University of Miami. I had designs i I, I had an idea I wanted to go to New England Conservatory, which was right down the the, the street from Berkeley I'd gotten really deeply into modern classical music. When I lived in Boston, the Boston Public Library was an amazing resource. You could go and check out records, like you could check out books. And they had a voluminous uh, collection of modern music. I'd say 20th century music. So I got really into Ives and Satie and Stravinsky and on and on uh, there. And so I I guess I felt that I wanted to go in that direction and wanted to go to New England Conservatory. So I auditioned and I made this tape. I tried to play very difficult music. It's laughable, stuff that I can hardly play (laughs) now. I was trying to play it then when I had no business. The tape was horrible. The guy called me up and said, look, I'm not letting you in, but I can tell there's something there. Uh, and some promise there. So why don't you try University of Miami? And of course, I'd never heard of that either. So I lived in a farmhouse that, from for four months after, that was in December, January, early January of of my sophomore year of co- of, of college. Uh, ended up living out in a farmhouse with a, a crazy friend of mine, and we're playing a piano bar cocktail lounge thing to make a buck. And I practiced eight hours a day for every every day for four months. And then four months later, made a tape for for University of Miami. And it's amazing how much, how much you can improve if you're willing to put that much time into it every day. And so the tape was better. They let me in, and I spent two years there, which was a huge thing for me. I had a very tough teacher, Vince Maggio. I still consider him to be my teacher. He was really hard on me, but he was great. He was a teacher that could not only talk the talk, but could walk the walk. He couldn't wait to move you off the piano to show you how to do it. And he could really show you. So I love Vince, as as do most of his students. Although, like I say, he was tough. He said to me at first, you are terrible, but if you do this and this and this and this and this, you won't be terrible, maybe. <laughs> and so,
1: but- I mean, it's really good advice from a mentor. And, and I think people don't want want to hear you know and again I don't know if this is generational or not, but my assumption is that people now more than ever don't want to hear that they were that they're not good. Well they, that there's a lot of placation and I remember a teacher of freshman year of college, my voice teacher is saying, um, you sound like a white kid from the suburbs. You need to learn to yell. And this is in my cause I study jazz vocals. You need to like and I didn't, you know, jazz vocals to me was Glenn Miller. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, you know, uh, Louis Armstrong. If we're going back to that, like I didn't understand the idea of of pain. Well, I still or, don't
0: understand it. I, I, who who yells in jazz vocals? I think of yelling. I think of Joe Strummer. You know, I think of you know Johnny Rotten. <laughs> yeah, or, that was
1: uh, still good at uh, Much rather sound like him than what I sounded like. Oh then. yeah. But was, you want to have mentors that say. You're not doing it right. Even now, like, do you do you now play your music for anybody who says, oh, you can beat this? Oh, sure.
0: Yeah, I I don't live in a vacuum and pretty much I don't think I really ever have. Um, mostly from idiots, idiocy. I, I what I thought was good is not so. Hey, listen, to this thing I just did. And then I realize, oh, yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> but uh, uh, but uh, yes, I think that. I think that it was always the same in this sense, though, I think it was always a tough blow to a a kid's ego in 1974, the same tough blow that it is now. So that was hard on me when when Vince told me that Uh, took me a while to sort of I recoiled in horror. And then I came back and decided, well, okay, let me see what's investigate this, see what what he's talking about. Again, it's just a kid from from small town south just trying to figure it out and so i of course in hindsight you always say oh thank you for the criticism but but in in the moment i don't think that's ever changed i don't think i mean, I'm so I guess i'm trying to say that maybe the kids today as you're saying are are more sensitive or have a thinner skin I, that may be true i i, I kind of think i had semi-thin skin then too i you know it's
1: what was the impulse to write music and record music cuz at that point you you're starting to get an education in music but there's a big leap you know you graduate and you know then the first time I can really find recorded music we're talking 10 years later from after graduating college, so yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, that's when I got signed. It was a uh, right. eight years after I graduated from college I, uh, again. So
1: what happened between those in those eight years? How do you go from I'm a student who has a mentor who's saying you suck, but you can get better to being to as a songwriter getting to the quality level of getting record deals? Well,
0: they're just they're too. Completely different disciplines, different aesthetics. They're just, just different approaches. Learning, you know, dealing with virtuosity on the instrument, and then also writing songs of some depth and quality. That they're they're two different paths. There are different roads that you need to uh, to go go down. So I was a, when I got out of college, I was way farther along on the playing end than I was as a writer. Cause I just, I had just been trying to do that. That had been my focus in college. Just get the instrument together or more together than, than you are now. So I really didn't get serious about the writing until we came back here. I graduated in 77 from UM, came back here with a couple of my, with my brother and sister-in-law in the band and, uh, Uh, that ever-present older brother, he returns to the story. I played in his Grateful Dead cover band when I was a freshman in college at University of Richmond. He was a big deadhead. He was in a classic UVA Dead uh, freak fraternity that used to drop acid, paint their faces, and go play intramural volleyball. It's just beautiful. They were lucky if they even hit the ball once.
1: Mm. (laughs) So... uh, I... uh, (laughs) I, (laughs) I just love that, that you know, I mean, we'll get to it later, but the fact that you were in a, you know, to be in a Grateful Dead cover band and then later play with the Grateful Dead is just bananas. Like, you can't write that kind of stuff. I know, it sounds
0: like terrible writing if you do write that. It, 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 it really does. <laughs> yeah, painting yourself into the mural that you were looking at as a kid, that's kind of what ha- has happened, what happened to me. Uh, uh, amazingly <laughs> enough. What's that?
1: You go home, you're you're writing with your brother and you're writing with your sister-in-law. No, 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 not
0: right. No, I was a solitary pursuit. So we come home and we put this band together with a couple of my Miami friends uh, who came up to play guitar and drums. And so, okay, I guess I was a a silently elected band songwriter. Nobody else was doing it. And, And I guess I had the knowledge, the harmonic knowledge to go to various places that other people may not have. Uh, been able to go so i started writing songs and about a year about a year and a half into our band so i guess around the end of 78 we had amassed a, a group of my songs maybe about 10 or so and we were playing them on our gigs we were just playing it's your standard top 40 lounges and we played the odd frat party to the odd rock and roll club in north carolina where they wanted to hear black oak arkansas and Black Betty Bama Lamb, you know they wanted that's. Sort of, we were not their people; they didn't like us. We were playing too much Earth Wind Fire, you know. So, uh, so, but we, I was figuring it out gradually, gradually in my muddle-headed fashion, and had written some songs that that made it that that people liked enough that we were able to flip the audience at these lounges uh, to the point where. Uh, the, the people populating the clubs we we're filling the clubs with people who didn't want to hear us play brick house or shake your booty they wanted to hear my songs and so that's a real trick it's hard to do because the, but it helped us continue to work and still develop this this original music thing because the club owners don't care why they're there they just want people in their club so okay uh, this This place is crowded, and you're playing some shit i don 't know and don't even like it probably but hey there's people here, so you guys keep the job so that that was a pretty good trick we were able to pull there
1: purely from people liking the music so we liked at the- were you were, were, i mean were, how did how did you know they liked it besides clapping at the end of your set were you recording it and selling it no, was, no- were people acting after- you know, afterwards how do you know people like your songs well in that okay era?
0: because after a certain point that's all we're playing and they keep coming
1: okay right. okay
0: and and when then then when you light into for whatever reason you light into so i'd like to know where you got the notion rock the boat don't rock the boat baby rock the boat don't kick the. you know when you go into that and they sort of sort of blanch in horror sitting in their seats sipping their beer. That's just that that makes you that lets you know why they're there. And so that I guess that's how no so we because we weren't selling anything. We weren't making any demos. But we liked uh we liked uh Steely Dan. You know we came out of the jazz school. So we we're into jazz influenced pop. It sounds like you went through a similar uh crucible in jazz school with a tough teacher. Uh so uh, right, so we like Steely Dan, but we and we also like Mike McDonald, who had been in Steely Dan, and now he was the lead singer with the Doobie Brothers. So we played some of their songs, the Mike McDonald songs. It keeps you running. I know you're made that way. These are some songs we would do for Mike's, and the people liked those because they 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 liked this music because it was stylistically akin to what what I was doing, sort of. Uh, so the Doobie brothers were playing Hampton Coliseum and we uh, were playing across the the street at the Hampton steak and ale. Okay. And uh, lounge. And we went over, we knew the same people that booked their big concerts, whisper concerts, booked our little shit ass uh, lounge gigs. And so we knew the Doobie brothers were staying at the Sheraton Coliseum. So my drummer, John Molo, big guy, uh, he and I walk into the, the, lobby of the Sheridan Coliseum looking for Mike McDonald, and there he is. So we walked up to him and we said, hey, Mike, we're the baddest motherfuckers in this town and we're playing over here at the Steak and Ale, so you should come hear us. So he looks up at us and he goes, well, okay, I'm going to the movies now, but I will if I can. And sure enough, he had brought, he was a night off for the Doobie Brothers. They were playing the next night. He came over with some of the Doobies, roadies. So we'd saved all our originals, you know, all my songs and just wore it out. And he's there and he just flipped and he comes up to me and says, oh, my God, come back to the let's have a drink. Let's hang out at the bar. Come up to my room. Let me play our our new record. It's being released tomorrow. It's called Minute by Minute, (laughs) which was, of course. Yeah, it was it was unbelievable. I can't believe it happened even now. But he was such a beautiful guy and it remains so, uh, of course. And so that, so he was our first connection. I, I refer to him as, as my discoverer and founder. And, and so he helped us out. We went to L.A. He turned us on to some people. He, that was during the, the era where Mike McDonald was singing on one third of the hit songs of the day. You know, His voice was in the background. Whether it was Peg, Steely Dan, uh, Lauren Woods, some song, and Christopher Cross, Ride Like the Wind. He was all over it. So he would turn our tape. We made a demo tape. It was pretty bad. He, he, he turned us on, Turned his, the tape on to producers when he would go work for them. We slept on his floor for 10 nights the next, the two months later in, in Studio City, the aforementioned john molo and i did and anyway long story short uh shorter uh we ended up coming out and showcasing for record companies and publishers the next summer jeff baxter wanted to produce us he was he was leaving the doobie brothers you know jack jeff baxter he was
1: i I know of him i i've actually met michael mcdonald along the way but never Jeff. okay
0: so skunk baxter as, as he's called Took us into some rehearsal studio, parked us there for a month, and we played for all sorts of people. We the, we I found out later that most of the people hearing us referred to us as the band that looked like roadies because we were hardly we were just a bunch of greasy guys who were, were into music, and so we did that. And pretty much all most of the labels passed on us. Only one was interested, and we didn't go with them. Twentieth Century Records, but I but the publishers liked what we what I was doing, songwriting as a songwriter so I ended up signing a songwriting deal with 20th Century Fox and I moved to LA from that and then three of the other guys moved and my brother and sister-in-law they stayed here in Williamsburg because they didn't want to go out and scuffle and play on milk commercials and shitty publishing demos whatever you could do to make a buck while you're trying to get your thing going so that was 1980 and I went to David Geffen's house and played him songs I mean, this is crazy. Yeah, you're shaking your head a lot of this story.
1: I mean, well, it's like this is the this is like my my dream era because I was born in '80s. So like, I listened. (laughs) I grew. I grew up listening to all the music from you know my my parents from you know basically their childhood all the way through through mine. But that era is the beginning of you know. So much of the music that I'm currently trying to bring back, in a lot of ways, you know, it's like. It's like so, and I'll have to interview so
0: you about that.
1: Exactly. <laughs> I mean, and David Geffen and and him's going from manager to label exec and and being part of the. You're talking about Studio City, where I currently live, oh, and uh-huh. we're right off we're right off Laurel Canyon. and You talk about Laurel Canyon in the '70s and early '80s and David Geffen's influence on that. Incredible. And you start yeah. to. You know, you start when you say that you're playing for David Geffen in in his sort of the first chapter of his prime or his second chapter of his prime. Like that's just such a legendary thing. I'm sure a lot of people who listen to this are currently talking to their David Geffens in this music business. But well, you know, that's a that's why I'm shaking my head. It's crazy, man. Well, I, I mean, like, I guess like Michael McDonald in the middle of a. <laughs> <laughs> like why what, what is this? Well, I, and, crazy- and I guess as I
0: hear you sort of marveling at all this, the, I, really though, in the end, the reason this was happening—I'm not trying to toot my horn because I don't think the music was really especially great then—but it had to have something to get these because that's that's what hooked hooked Michael, okay, and to to help me out. And then when I signed with Twentieth, uh, one of the one of the uh, song runners there was a, a, a young girl, a young woman named James Foster, who was David Foster's little sister. <laughs> shaking his head so uh, So Nuts. she turned my tape on to David Foster, and David wanted to sign me to his publishing company. This was just when he was just getting started as a producer. He had written After the Love is Gone, for Earth, Wind & Fire, you know, iconic hit for them. Was, he produced a Hall & record that wasn't particularly a, Big hit, but it was very good. Made a little noise, so I signed with him, and so uh, so we made this demo. The first session I did in L.A. was with you know the Cats. It had Mike precaro on bass and Jay Graydon on guitar, and David playing one playing electric piano, and I'm playing acoustic piano, and Carlos Vega on drums. I don't know if you know these names, but these are just seminal names from that era's studio scene. A studio session scene, uh, and so David Geffen heard that tape, and he instantly said, "I want to see this this kid." <laughs> okay, so I I went with my publisher at the time, Ronnie Vance. We went up to David Geffen was sharing share was 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 living in Cher's house while she was somewhere else in Be- Bel Air, Beverly Hills, and I would go up there. And David's there with his, one of his, he, he was starting his new label, didn't have a name yet. Okay, it wasn't called Geffen Records yet. He had signed one at Donna Summer. He subsequently signed later that fall. So this is June of 1980. He He'd subsequently later signed Elton and John Lennon in the fall. And John Lennon then was assassinated Of of, of late that year, I think it was December of eighty. I'm not sure, but anyway, uh, so we go over there, Carol. Yeah, so Carol Childs is A and R person, and Ronnie Vance and I were sitting there, and Dave Dave is there. And so then he, so he says to me, "Uh, "Play me a song." There's a piano there, so I started playing this song that that I'd recorded uh, that we had recorded on this demo, and it was one of those moments where. The acoustics of the room were just glorious, you know. Uh, the, just the 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 man with the voice of a thousand seagulls would have sounded amazing in this place, you know. It would have sounded incredible here. So I just I'm, I'm very aware of this. Oh my God, this is. I don't think I've ever sounded this good. I'm saying to myself as this is going on. And when the song ended, David Geffen jumped up and said to me, "Brucey, I want you to make records for me." And so, I'm thinking, God is I get there's another chill I got thinking about remembering that moment. And uh, so I thought to myself, Wow, is is it this e- easy? Well, alas, it was not that easy. And I never signed with Geffen. Uh, he then put my situation in the hands of Carol Childs and the. Uh, Another subsequent hire, A uh, and R hire, the legendary John David Kaladner. So, uh, he's known, he's maybe best known as, as the, the rabbi, la, rabbi looking cat with a wedding dress and dude looks like a lady.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Aerosmith's uh, video. Yeah, that, that's him. Uh, a, a, quite a, a, quite a successful and great A and R guy. So we waltzed around, David Foster and I waltzed around with Carol and Kalodner for about three or four months recording songs. My younger brother, John, was, had moved. He'd gone to Stanford, graduated that year, and came, moved down to L.A. To, to write with me. He was going to be my partner, and we ended up being partners. That was 80. We wrote songs together all the way through 92. He wrote Mandolin Rain with me. He wrote Valley Road. He looked, wrote Look Out in the Window, uh, had some nice success with me a few years after that so uh but then they brought me into their office and said brucey you're not you you're the kind of guy we want but you're not ready yet and i think they were right
1: you know one of the things that's crazy is a lot of times people get to know in that era a lot of times people would get signed off of their live show yeah and in this era a lot of people feel like they need to get signed off the live show and I'm always telling people no get signed off your songs Well, and it, how big your live shows are if the songs aren't going to work it won't matter it'll take you forever to stay at a very medium level versus if the songs are huge well I've got a standard
0: line regarding all that my, yeah. I think my story is, is, is an educational one because okay so let's we'll fast forward So the Kevin people said, yeah, not, not yet, not quite. I, then I had Warner Brothers, the great Lenny Warrinker, give me demo money the next year, made a demo. Eh, yeah, not right. This happened for years. Finally, I, uh, and all this time, we're trying to, my brother and I are trying to find our own voice. Like I mentioned, try to find an area that was unique to us, that would carve out our own niche, uh, st- musically, stylistically. And we were just pursuing that. I don't think we had it yet, really. Uh, we went down some goofy roads and, and came back. And anyway, so uh, 1985 comes comes along. 1980, oh, 80, okay, 84. We put together, our, a, I put together a band, The Range. By this time, because I wanted to hide behind a name, I thought Bruce Hornsby was a pretty crappy stage name. So I thought I would do like Mark Knopfler did and hide behind a name, Dire Straits for him the range for me. So we were the range and it was sort of we were trying to affect our modern day version of the band before before, before this whole uh, area of music was titled under the umbrella Americana that didn't exist then. We were trying to be I guess that and our timing was probably pretty good because uh, sort of in the zeitgeist of the time Tom Petty was doing this uh, John Mellencamp was having incredible American rock records. Bruce Springsteen, of course, was doing this. Uh, and so, so we were doing our version. It was 1984. And we're playing all around L.A. Uh, Madame Wong's Hop Sings, the Lingerie, the, all the clubs of the time. Uh, and we got a little head of steam. We got some interest. And in about five labels offered us a deal, offered us demo money. We took Epic. And we made a demo for Epic and uh, and they passed. And so sort of the, the lemmings consciousness of the L.A. show business, music, music business is such that, well, when all the other labels who had been interested heard that they passed, then they all passed, too. You know, oh, oh, if they don't like it must not be good. So so then so that so here i would gotten to a certain point and been busting it and trying to get writing these songs and. Playing accordion a lot, playing hammer dulcimer, it was more folk I had David Mansfield playing fiddle mandolin, the great David, and uh, it was he was on he was in the range for a couple of years there. And so I was up working for Sheena Easton, so I'm licking my wounds, I'm out on the road playing morning train, playing for your for your eyes only, blah, 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 on the road, making a. I, I love Sheena, she treated me great. I was sort of the teacher's pet because she liked my music. She'd listen. You'd hear her warming up to my demo that everyone had just passed on. So, uh, so I'm thinking, wow. I'm on this. I'm ruminating about all this. Okay, what next? So I just really finally, out of frustration, frankly, with the way the band was playing my songs, I decided to make a, a tape. I just bought a Lynn drum machine, one of the early ones, and I made a, a tape. Demo tape uh, of two songs: "Mandolin Rain" in "The Way It Is" with the drum machine. <laughs> there's there, there was again. Just <laughs> I just got it again. Uh, so uh, so uh, made this tape and I thought, well, no major label. And I played piano on it and I hadn't done that for a while because I didn't hear anybody playing piano. I was sort of following what was happening and thought, well, that's not happening. So I play a DX7 or some idiocy and. So, but this was just me unencumbered by anything, but what I liked and what, what I wanted to do. So it was a, when I, when my brothers heard it, they said, Oh, this is, this is the most you that we've ever heard. This is so pure and, and, uh, deep in that way. And so, so I get, I thought no major label would have any interest in this, although I'd made inroads, I knew these people, uh, They'd passed on me for years. (laughs) And so, uh, I sent it to Wyndham Hill. I knew this woman, Dawn Atkinson. I worked on a George Lucas, uh, little animated film called twice upon a time. I'd done a song for it and she'd worked on it. So I, she was now working for Wyndham Hill, you know, the new age label. They were starting a vocal label. So I sent it to her and she called me back, and said, wow, I love this. I can't stop listening to it. Uh, are, uh, are you doing any more? I said, why? Well, I just happened to be getting ready to cut two more songs. She said, can I come to the session? So yes, come down. She flew down from the Bay area, came to the session and she took a, a little, uh, tape, a little demo, a little rough mix that we, that we put down at the end of the night's recording. It was just me with the drum machine and me playing everything, synth bass on an Oberheim OBX, uh, piano little paddle little string pad whatever the next day will ackerman at wyndham hill called me up and said uh hi this is will ackerman we'd like to sign you so it was as simple as that then my lawyer uh he heard it and he said this is too good for wyndham hill let me have some a couple of i want to disseminate this around i said no fred i think this is fine but he talked me into it and he gave it to his great friend paul atkinson the former zombie's Rhythm guitar player, beautiful English man, uh, who was the head of a at RCA. And he gave it to Paul. And Paul had been one of the ones he knew me. He'd been one of the ones coming out to our shows the year before and had offered us demo money. We just hadn't picked them. We'd picked Epic. So then, he, then he had the same reaction. He, he said, he called Fred and said, I just can't take this cassette out of my car. And that's the point you have it's 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 easy to it's easy in theory and extremely difficult in reality but you have to create something that someone can't stop listening to that gets so under their skin it's again simple concept but really hard in practice and so uh so that's what this little tape was it was that it was that tape then the guy at Epic Records who had offers the demo money. Then he starts getting wind of this. Then he offered us a, a, a deal. So Wyndham Hill was out. It was between Epic and RCA, and we picked RCA. So that's the story. But to me, like I say, it's a good story. It's an inspiring story for someone trying to do this. Of course, the music business is completely different. The major labels are not nearly the powerhouses that they were. It's not the same I at know. all. So, But still... The basic idea will always be th- the idea, which is it will always be the goal. You have to create something that gets under someone's skin, that they can't stop listening to you. It just moves them so deeply in whatever way. And uh, until you do that, then you're going to continue to try to do that. That's, 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 that's the goal. <laughs>
1: these songs you know the way it is in mandolin rain in particular are so you know if i brought into a session i got a concept mandolin rain everyone would be like what else do you got <laughs> not because because <laughs> you're couldn't. you you're probably no, right I, yeah,
0: okay right.
1: like it's not something that you just go and like wh- what inspires that kind of lyric did that lyric come first uh what where did that song come no, from? no, the lyrics
0: came later, but the the idea of mandolin rain is just the idea of the standard mandolin trill yeah, sounding like rainfall. that's it yeah. so i it, mean it's it's, it's
1: it's so it's so smart it's it's that so you know you can try to go into sessions all the time and and a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are mostly just songwriters just trying to get cuts. And I don't know. I- well, that's
0: a different, that's a completely different area. I can't speak to that because I'm totally about not, I'm totally not about. Yeah. What's that?
1: Being an artist. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, that's right. the way it is, what's great about the way it is in different, you know, different than mandolin rain in this sense is like that chorus you could have written. That chorus could uh, be part of a thousand different concepts you know it's the lyrics and it's the lyrics in the verses that really give it its gravitas and yet you know you hear it you know you see people singing at karaoke so it's something that they they you know the the meaning and the depth of the meaning is sort of is is what you strive for as a writer where when you listen to it on the third time you're like wow these verses are these verses mean something well look I, I
0: it it 's real easy and it's a standard thing to Monday morning quarterback to to in hindsight look back and explicate why something was successful. I don't tend to do that I'd have my own explanation for why I think the way it is was a hit again, my own version of the Monday morning quarterbacking and that and that is this so, so look your your guess is as good as mine my, my, my guess is that I call the way it is a novelty record in a, a radio sense. In, in the best sense, I call Fast Car by Tracy Chapman a novelty record. I call "Sultans and Some Swing by Darius Swayze a novelty record in the best sense in that it's t- so different. It's pure luck, mind you, but they're so different than the standard baby, baby, uh, slick, production even now the, the 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 sort of modern r&b pop that that gets played as top 40 now i guess because i don't follow it at all but so i'm tr- probably speaking completely from ig- from, from ignorance it. but okay uh, but uh so i i think it's i think the way it is was successful because it's a nice sound it's a different sound here's the there's a guy soloing on piano because see, see, I I think the lyrical a- aspect of pop hits is overrated. I think people really hear a sound that's intoxicating, and maybe by like you were just saying, oh, by the third or third or maybe the thirteenth time, they're starting to clue into lyrics because it's just a sound that's drawn them in. So that's what I feel. Novelty in again the best sense, it's a sound that goes down easy. <laughs> And um am but it's a guy soloing on piano. So, wow, we don't hear that ever on radio. And so that's my, but, but again, that's just as full of beans as the next guy who's trying to, uh, in hindsight, uh, explicate why.
1: All the things that happened after that album, you know, there's a, such a quantity of music that you released and you start working at some point in film and whatnot. Only for um, one
0: guy, I'm I'm like Tom Hagen of, in The Godfather, who had he's a lawyer with one client, Don Corleone. I'm a film composer with one, uh, one boss, uh, Spike Lee. <laughs> uh, he's the only.
1: How did, how, I mean, Spike <laughs> Lee is I am it, a master at what he does. No question. How did you end up getting? <laughs> Sucked into that world. It's
0: again. It's just like every. It's just. It, it's just like. I hate to make be simplistic about it, but the reason is the same as all these other things. Mike McDonald, David Geffen, uh, 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 Paul Atkinson, my lawyer, whoever. Uh, Wyndham Hill. The reason that Spike started wanting to work with me is that he likes what I do. It moves him. Yeah. It moves. It's as simple as that, and that's that's probably the reason for that most think these sort of things happen. You know, if if somebody hears your music and they just love it, they want to get to know you. You know, they want to investigate. They want to know more about it and you. So so that's the answer with Spike. He was a fan of my music. We had a mutual friend, Bransford Marsalis, who decided to hook us up for dinner. The three of us went out to dinner and I asked him to, uh, this was 92, I asked him to to uh, direct a video for an upcoming record. I was making a song about the first interracial romance in my town here in Williamsburg called talk of the town with Brantford on sax, And he did that. And it it just, I've been working with him that now for 28 years. And so that's just continued. And it just became a deeper, uh, work relationship when he asked me in 2008 to start scoring for him. So, uh, that which led into my last two records, Absolute Zero and Non Secure Connection, because uh, over half of the songs on those two records uh, emanated from score, score music that I'd written from Spike, hence the cinematic quality of it, at least to me. So, how about that? I, I was able to seg- deftly segue from 1992 to, to, to
1: 2020. I mean, that was, it's brilliant. How <laughs> incredible. That. <laughs> um, you know, we'll go to the last segment. I'm going to list five things and just tell me what comes off the top of your oh. head. If you have, you know, this next little bit, but uh, we'll just start with the Grateful Dead.
0: Uh, what just what comes to
1: mind? Just what comes to mind.
0: Uh, where else can you play one song for an hour? The Grateful Dead is the place. Is the place to go for that? I guess that you want me to to kind of riff. Riff. I
1: mean, it's so cool. Look, the the reality is, you know, you got to play with The Grateful Dead. and with Garcia while he was still alive. Yeah, The Grateful Dead is a deep
0: is a deep area of conversation and rumination, and there's so much to talk about. You know, there's quite a vast library of literature now uh, that uh, deals with the, 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 the Grateful Dead over the Grateful Dead history. So I could just, go, that, that's a completely different podcast. Uh, but so in a nutshell, I guess I say this a lot, but I wouldn't trade my time with the dead for anything. I, it was so deep. And I think they're vastly underrated as songwriters. I think their they're, they're songwriting canon is, is comparable to any of the great uh, great songbooks and in, in popular music history, American popular music history. That that's my feeling, and so that's a good enough sort of end statement. That's that's really truly how I feel.
1: In non secure connection, your newest album, you featured some of the best and most influential artists currently. So um, I just wanted to ask about that. You know, Justin Vernon, James Mercer. Uh, that'll be my number. That'll be my next one on my list.
0: Well, again, people would say it uh, goes hand in hand exa- with exactly what we were talking about, what we've been talking about the whole time. There's one, cur- one common thread, current running through this. Uh, Justin Vernon started shouting me out as one of his early influences one of the reasons he got deeply involved in music. And he, then he called me or got in touch with me about working with him on a Grateful Dead tribute record uh, called Day of the Dead. It's still 10 CD indie rock, uh, massive magnum, <laughs> magnum opus. And we did Black Money River because he liked my version of it from a record of mine called Here Come the Noisemakers, a, a live record from 2000. Uh, so we started working together and we just kept on. We had about five years there where we're just, I was playing Coachella with him and, and playing at his festival and he was singing on my dulcimer record. And then we wrote a song from absolute zero. And then we wrote a song for his last record too. So it's just kept on going, but again, it all started the same way. He just was a real fan. And, uh, and so he reached out because he wanted to again, investigate more deeply now james mercer is is actually not part of this this thread because that was me reaching out to him i'd written this song i love the shins my favorite shins record is wincing the night away and there's a song on there called called spilt needles which just turns me out i just think it's fantastic melodically angular melodicism uh, he's a great lyricist, a, fant- a, a transcendent singer. I just love what he does. So I'd written this song called My Resolve for the nonsecure record and uh, a Sisyphean tale of the creative life. So I thought I would try to make it into a, du- a duet and try to find uh, a, a, a fellow creator, a fellow fellow artistic striver who could relate to this. And I'd written... Very, uh, speaking of angularity, I'd written a very angular melodic uh, melodic line, which was which and my inspiration was that song Spilt Needles. So I thought, well, there's a Shinsian factor here. Let me reach out to James Mercer. I'd never met him. Just reached out through the channels and he said, Well, send me the song. And we sent him the song. He said, Yeah, I'm in. So it was as simple as that. He did his part, sent it to us, and we were mad for it. And we'd done several remote performances for the the recent virtual Bonnaroo festival. We did one for Stephen Colbert, and I just love him. He's a new great friend, and so that so that's a little different. That wasn't him reaching out to me. All these other ones were, but so now and then I'm I'm allowed to reach out to people too, and it and so like that. that's how that I mean happened.
1: this whole this whole interview is just a giant ploy for us to eventually write together, but we can get to that afterwards. Um, let's go with, um, let's go with Kathy and your sons. Well, okay.
0: It's a deep bond, tight family. I've been married for almost 37 years. I almost blew it. Got lucky and didn't. Uh, and then we tried hard to have kids for several years, it's tough tough luck a couple of incomplete pregnancies it's di- you know, went through difficult times but man it's worth the wait we had our twin sons in 1992 and now they're almost 29 and one of them's in LA it's not far from you he's he has aspirations to be an actor kind of but he's mostly a mountain climber he's out climbing crazy mountains scaring the crap out of his parents daily uh, and his twin brother, Keith, is a professional basketball player in Germany. He played for LSU. Russell the run- Russell was a runner at, at Oregon, the, 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 the climber. so he had a couple of hotshot jocks, and one of them's still making a living as a pro in Germany.
1: Amen. So,
0: so yeah there's so um, yeah pr- so proud of my family. obviously my sons and my wor- my, my, my first wife she 's uh, truly special
1: um let's go with bobby your brother
0: (laughs) well i've referenced him a lot in this conversation because he was the real muso early on in our family and he still is he's still very active regionally around here he's in demand bass player you know bobby horsby was climbing the cape hatteras lighthouse oh that's right that's not that's not the right story we were trying he was trying we'd locked ourselves out of a house in virginia beach and he was pushing on the glass to get in and the glass broke and he split the tendon in his uh um, in his left index finger and it was permanently locked we I, i'm driving him to the to the hospital and uh they operated on it so he plays with just these three fingers bass which is quite something. He's been doing this forever. Imagine not having the most important finger on your hand. It, mm-hmm. it, it, immob- completely immobile. You could not move it. It's just rigid like a rock. So, uh, so yeah, he's, uh, he's quite a guy. The, again, the original deadhead. Uh, and so uh, I, I guess he's been a big influence and, and a, a true great brother
1: for many, many years. And then, obviously, we have to do John as well, who you co wrote. John
0: Hornsby, same thing. But truly, a great brother. Uh, I'm the middle. I'm the emotionally disturbed middle child. So, I was probably I I was really close and had this close working relationship with my older brother Bobby, and then later with my younger brother John as as a collaborator, as a a co writer, co songwriter. And so we had a serious run there. Uh, as 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 collaborators, from again, like I said, eighty to about ninety three, when he just kind of got burnt out with it and just decided what he wanted to do something else. Uh, but uh, yeah, he's the uh, he's he's the one with the high academic credentials, Stanford degree, UVA law. You know, he's 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 that guy. So uh, we uh, we admire and love him as well.
1: When. Uh, when I talk to people and I look at their discography, um, a lot of times there are moments where it seems like there was, you know, long periods of self-doubt or, or questioning. And I'm sure all that is baked into a lot of the music that, you know, all musicians do. never ends. It never ends. Yeah. It never ends. Yeah. But you, you always found a way. It's you released an album essentially from 1986, all the way through some some sort of music, not including the stuff you were doing for Spike. No, with no more than two years in between releasing music.
0: Yeah, I had I had a couple of three year uh, breaks uh, between records between uh, the last range record in '90, Harbor Lights so was '93. Then 95, uh, Hot House to 98, to Spirit Trail, but th- other than that, uh, it's been pretty pretty steady. So, that's, that's true. Just
1: mm-hmm. really amazing. Uh, <clears throat> one more question before we sign out. I just wanted to talk real quick about the Tupac cover. It's so it becomes so big and so part of his career. Like you said, it doesn't necessarily mean that it translated to radio play but it clearly <laughs> you know it clearly you know for anybody who listened to tupac ever it's a staple it's a greatest hit um how did it feel to see that song re-envisioned you know 12 years later or whatever yeah, it exactly was?
0: 12 yeah uh look it was an amazing feeling um because I loved what he did. I loved the message. It was a positive message and uh, just a great record. I, I got a cassette out of the blue from the Shakur Foundation. They were going through these voluminous files of sessions after he was assassinated and they found this and they got in touch with me and they said, look, we found this and this is going to be the single off of his greatest hits record. And so we just wanted you to know about this so we can negotiate the publishing splits and uh, it was a way dirtier version, a whole lot more of the N word in there. Uh, that got eradicated for uh, for the the, the final uh, greatest hits record. And again, I just thought it was a, a fantastic piece of music, a fantastic uh, a reimagining of of what I had done. And then all these years later, just this year, the young Chicago rapper Polo G has redone that with a great uh, song called Wishing for a Hero. And uh, I think his, his his reason for doing this, for remaking it, was to make the statement that, well, it's now however many years, 22 years later after changes, and things still haven't changed. It's still the same. We ended up doing a remote duet, Polo G and I, uh, for for this the aforementioned Bonnaroo remote thing. Uh it should be out on the internet at some point soon. So it was classic man. It may be the first rap performance ever with no beat. The piano is the rhythmic, the only rhythmic material. But he is just nailed it. I I love it. Look, it's 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 so special at age sixty-five, almost sixty-six, that I'd still get to work with Polo G, the Polo G's, and Justin Vernons, and James Mercer's, and Jamila Woods, uh, just on and on. So,
1: yeah, some lucky bastard. <laughs> you know, we, not everybody who, uh, not everybody who's in your position, wants to work with people of in different generations, and not everybody. Is inspired by music that evolves in one way or the other and clearly you know well, I think they're missing du- something
0: so much I think they're crazy because so much music now is so creative and so interesting and gets under my skin and uh so well I, they're just missing something I most of my friends not all of them. Some are, are still fr- pretty engaged with it. But most of my friends, I think, really are not interested in in what's happening now in in indie music, in, in adventurous music. I don't think so. I hope maybe I hope I'm wrong, but that's my impression. But so for me, I'm totally interested because that, it inspires me.
1: Well, thank you for doing this podcast I, because I for me I think it's also important for this next generation to recognize who the innovators were before they were even, you know, thinking about doing music, some that, you know, obviously were influenced by you in real time and some that who didn't realize where those samples came from, whatever the case is, it's important that we have these conversations so you can know who Glenn Miller is and you can know who, you know, who, you know, Tupac is and and understand this, this wide variety of music. So that way, when you pull from these different influences, you can learn how to be unique and find your own voice, which as you said, it wasn't until you got back to the piano that people are like, oh, that's the guy, that's you. Yes. It wasn't somebody who's trying to be the new cool kid. It was just you were naturally just being you. Exactly.
0: It was, yeah.
1: yeah. Well, I just I appreciate this, man. You were this is this is awesome. Really cool experience for me and for our listeners. Well, so, well, thanks. well, thanks. I think uh,
0: increasingly as I get older, I'm ambitious and uh, musically. And I'm just trying to often make a try to make a sound that I've never heard before, and that's that's Uh not easy. So it leads me to some strange areas that really turn off a lot of my uh, more maybe traditional listeners. Because when I mostly referencing the last, the latest two records, especially the the latest one, "Not Secure Connection," is probably the weirdest record I've made. And I'm I'm influenced by modern classical music in this, atonal music, Elliot Carter, Olivier Michonne, uh, Arnold Schoenberg, on and on. That's what, because I, I love that. I loved it from, I, I mentioned it when I was, when we were talking about Berkeley, the B- Boston Public Library, I was immersing myself in all this, and I've continued to through the years, and now it's really more, of, it's, it's coming out, unfortunately for a lot of my fans who really hate it, it's coming out in, in my music and so again but I think it's I think it's just key to try to make a sound that you haven't heard before. That's fucking hard to do, but sometimes when you can do it, it's a fairly euphoric feeling to go, you know what? I don't think anything I've ever heard sounds like this and I really uh, that's very
1: intoxicating. Well that's perfect. Great way to go out. Thank you, sir. Okay. Thanks, Ross. Nice talking to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silverstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan.